Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. It's good to be back with you. And uh, hope everybody is well. Yes, let's hope everyone's doing fine and dandy. And uh, it is good to be back. And every Friday morning, folks, at about 7.40, I know it's a little later now, about 7.40 every Friday, uh, you can catch us here with the weekly update at the JM and the AM. You know, there's a lot being spoken about regarding, um, and you and I have discussed over the years the whole issue of free speech and and whether we're for boycotts or censorship and it's a really delicate place to be in a leadership role in the Jewish world when this topic comes up. And you see the way Facebook and Twitter's being criticized for the way they're handling the New York Post investigation. At the same time, Facebook has essentially banned Holocaust denial from their social media site. So any any observation you can give us about what it's like to be from you know our background and community and be you know, obviously pro-freedom of speech, but in some ways we do encourage, you know, censorship or alteration of, of, uh, of, of certain stories and certain posts from our social media giants. What are your feelings on the matter? Well, you're right that it's a dilemma because, uh, you know, we are free speech advocates generally, but as uh, the classic example of yelling fire in a theater, there are limits. And this is not about um, a political issue or a candidate or any of the other issues that are generally debated these days. This is about denying an historical fact. And it's not just about the Holocaust. They said that there would be uh, attempts to deny or diminish violent events, including the Holocaust, um, which is based on the company's policy. And as you know, Twitter followed uh, Facebook in this regard. Right. And they said that we, we banned anti-Semitic stereotypes about the collective power of Jews that depicts them as running the world, which, as you know, is a common theme uh, today and even in the United States and on many, many websites. And the, you know, blaming the corona, all the things that they do, these are all with consequence. These are all uh, allegations that people have been hurt about, people have been uh, beaten up, and we know historically the price we pay. So it, it is not uh, simply, it's not a question of censorship here. I think it's it's a question of legitimacy and and and, and uh, denying historical realities for a purpose, and that purpose is to to hurt Jews. So, you know, I don't think that it's it's uh, fits the category of a lot of the other objections we might have had right. in regard to the. But but the, the the internet, if people would have a chance to see. How, what the real internet, but below the surface, we see some of these obvious websites. There are thousands, tens of thousands maybe, of websites that uh, portray Jews in horrific ways all over the world. And Iran keeps pouring them out. The PA has, has been behind them. Others have been behind them. They come from the left and from the right. I uh, once was taken you know, into the dark web. It, it's so horrific to see it because it's, it's like vipers jumping out from every point uh, as they show you other and other and other sources um, and uh, anti and you, sites that and as soon as you cancel one two more appear so this is a really serious issue that is affecting people's lives and you see how many of the uh, attacks in Europe and elsewhere and here uh, were traced then to incitement on the internet right um, it, I understand there's a lot of 
websites out there and as you just described you know the dark web or beneath the surface is a lot of stuff going on but there really is no competitor to twitter and facebook there really is no colleague to them if there was an alternate there would be a lot of people who really would be you know very satisfied (laughs) if there was another social media site to go to nobody has the reach that they have with that in mind do you worry? I mean, you know, we, there's there's a there's a lot of baggage in Jewish history, and a lot of it has to do with you know when when uh, when a lot of power is accumulated. Uh, do you worry that you know as these issues continue to come up and as uh, uh, people continue to post negative things about the Jewish community, there may be a time where a giant like Twitter or Facebook would look the other way? I think they have looked the other way in in uh, in instances. Um... They tried to defend their previous positions. This is a change. It's, a, it's a, a, I think, a significant change. And uh, but, but, you know, it, the question of the technology to be able to identify all the anti-Semitic sources, and they keep changing the names. So, you know, if 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 there are programs, for instance, that can identify certain words, so that's the obvious ones. But somebody show me this thing about Jewish baby strollers or something. Right, right. You know, that they keep coming up with new ways to, right. to try and disguise it. So, you know, that the, uh, the it's a massive undertaking to, to try and really eliminate it. Yeah, no question about it. Uh, by the way, and, and, and I, I really wanted to start with this because I, I thought it was important to. Uh, you talk about the way Jews are represented, and we're so proud when we're represented well. Uh, many of us have become aware of the fact that Rabbi Sachs, Lord Sachs, is not well at the moment right. uh, with a cancer diagnosis. And I think one of the reasons it hit us so hard is because he represents us so well. Who represents the Jewish people and Orthodox Jews in a more dignified manner and in such a uh, and, and, and in such a uh, intelligent a, way. intelligent way, the way he does, and I think that's why many of us are affected by this news. So we pray for his recovery, of course, and for his good health. You started this conversation by saying, "Hope you're well. Hope everybody's well." And these days, we always say that. I had the exact same reaction that we have so few spokespeople who can speak across the board who are articulate. And respectful, and, and respectful, and respectful of all, but and and have gained the respect yeah. from the Queen, from the leaders in England, but around the world also. He is seen in is uh, one of those unique individuals, and we wish him a refuah quickly. We need him, and uh, God willing, he will be all right. Yeah, he's got a lot left in him. He's got a lot more work to do, no question about it. And we do pray for him certainly. Uh, and and I, I don't want to put you in a sensitive position because when it comes to local stuff, sometimes uh, uh, it, you hesitate to address it, and I totally get that. But you just said. You know what it, how unique it is to have good, effective, respectful leadership, and I think in every situation, including what's going on now in New York, what we seek and what we hope for is good, respectful leadership. And you often have spoken to us about those who compare certain episodes or certain situations to quote unquote, and I'll say it in quotes, Nazi Germany, because the way people talk about it, it's like you know, it's a concept as opposed to historical reality. And uh, do you have any thoughts about the way people should react when they're not 100% happy with the way state or city government is dealing with our community? Maybe you might suggest, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, you might suggest that that comparisons like that may not be justified? You can't put those words in my mouth, absolutely. And the the it's often an absence of an argument when you resort 
is screaming Nazi at, at police officers or others, it's not helpful. It doesn't win any support. It doesn't gain anything. And I'll tell you the truth that many of the young people who are yelling it have no clue today anymore about what really happened in the Shoah. <laughs> Good point. And, and would not be able to identify what, what it means when, with some of the language that is being used. And often... You know, we've seen um, sometimes a vacuum of leadership or, or uh, an ability of uh, really well-meaning and, and effective and devoted people to, to affect the situation. And then, uh, and you know, that vacuum is always filled by others, and not, the most, not often the, most, uh, the people we would most want to see. Um, we have to think and, uh, often, and I, I, you know, this applies, and you know I've said it many times, to political arguments to everything, right. is it's not what you say. You have to think about how it's heard. And especially when you have TV cameras all over the place, when you have people recording now with the uh, iPhones and everything, that everything today is on the record so that it, it circulates, and then it circulates nationally and internationally. And the calls I've gotten from all over the world from people saying, "What is what is that? What is going on there? What what the portrayal is so negative and so bad?" And we're the media has been distorted. The media has been insightful. The media has been so negative and and trying to portray Jews in the in the worst way. But then we contribute to it when yeah. we stage the kind yeah. of things that have been seen. And uh, you know, I know many rabbinim have tried valiantly to, to send out the right messages, both about compliance, but also about reaction. Yeah, and, and also when when you're dealing with uh, situations where where people, and I understand when it comes to Shabbos and Yantif, when it comes to every day, people want to be in shul, people want to be actively involved in, in 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 communal prayer. I get all that, especially this past week, the, the, probably the biggest social week on the Jewish calendar when it comes to our, our faith based uh, existence, meaning the the week of Sukkot. Uh, but sometimes, if there, you know, sometimes the way people behave has to be evaluated and questioned um, when when it looks like they're flaunting um, uh, uh, themselves and their events. And I'll say it: their kiddishes specifically in front of state authorities. L- last thing on this topic: um, the um, the uh, you mentioned the <laughs> now, of course, now of course, I've lost uh, my train of thought. Uh, oh yeah, I was reminded. One last thing on this topic: I was reminded about this when I saw an interview with a bishop yesterday, a local bishop here in uh, in New York City. Um, the reality is that there there is a a battle over faith going on. I mean, it's a reality. If 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 authorities are a little bit more lenient or more lenient in general with certain gatherings, groups, etc., it's a reality that that there is a that there is a, a, a that there is tension between what we would call secular leaders of the secular community and the faith-based community. But I think it's important to point out that that is across the board. It's happening across the country with every religious group going through similar activities. And we, of course, have to be active and have to establish partners, you know, proper partners to deal with it. But, you know, we also have to be uh, in tune with that reality and not just yell Nazi at everybody, you know, when something doesn't go the way we think it should. That, that is true, but I think that we've seen such successes, sometimes that are part of public officials or uh, law enforcement or others or apparent what appears to be excessive. We've also seen in terms of reaction that the excessive noncompliance, that, that it's not so much the demand of you, what, what they demand of others, but when you look at the charts of, 
of what's happened in other communities where the numbers appear to be, appear to be, because nobody has really mastered this that I know, that you see Dr. Fauci and the president arguing still over, over statistical analyses and facts. But there are facts that are incontrovertible. And more importantly, that if this is what, what is required to keep our schools open, our schools open, to do take the necessary steps, then we should be doing it. And, and so many Rabbanim have called for it, so many others. And then people take law into their own hand and, and make the decisions. Uh, I mean, how many told me, you know, when we walk on the street and you see the people without uh, masks, when a police car driving by, you know that they're taking count. Right. I live in a red zone. Right. Uh, you know, I, I see it, and there's no reason for it to be a red zone because I don't think that the numbers particularly here. And, you know, there are a lot of other people, non-Jews, who live in those zip codes, and nobody differentiates between those numbers although there are obviously numbers of real concern in in religious in, in populations uh, centers for religious Jews but the but the you know there are if people always cite corona elmwood all these other places where it's very high that does not excuse though some of the behavior and the reaction and the fact that this then becomes the face of the community to the world and everything is instantaneous you know, if I get reaction from Australia, I get it before I even have a chance to see it myself, <laughs> because it goes instantly around the world. Do you think of the Chil Hashem that, that we're creating? You're right. There is a tension over religious issues in, in many communities. And the fact that, the, you know, situations were set up where it appeared that they were pitting us against other groups, saying, well, you're going to pay because of, of this other group. And and there should be ways that they could evaluate each school, see which one is in compliance. If school's not in compliance and really flagrantly violating things or a synagogue, then you take whatever appropriate action uh, is is um, allowed to them by law, even if, if if you can agree or disagree with that action. But the 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 blanket closing of a hundred public schools and all these others and saying, well, it's because. Of the of these Jews and then saying the problem is Orthodox Jews over and over again uh, is not helpful and it does I think it, it leaves a lasting impression within the Jewish community it drives a, a divide and of course between Jews and non-Jews and I think that that I hope people elected officials public officials all our leaders will all keep this in mind you gotta think before you speak and think of what the implications of what you're saying. Not out of anger, not out of pique, and not out of personal insult or whatever is not a reason, is not a basis for policy. Excellent point. I thank you for addressing this local issue, which frankly I believe has international ramifications. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program, heard on listeners sponsored digital radio. Around the world, the web at NahumSingle.com and the NahumSingle Network, and of course in the beloved NSN app. Uh, support us by going to fjbunity.org, fjbunity.org, whether you do utilize one of the significant numbers or not, like Eric in Sweden, $6.13 overnight. Uh, but what, <laughs> no matter what recommendation you take, 26, 101, 180, or anything else, uh, please support us at um, fjbunity.org. And don't forget, this coming Thursday night, we talk baseball in an exclusive Zoom session with Steve Adelsberg and a former Major League player. Zoom is coming Thursday night at 7.30, exclusive for those who've supported us. Uh, and it's really easy to do so if you uh, want to be if you want to be part of that uh, event this coming Thursday night. Uh, simply become one of our sponsors at any rate, and it's much appreciated.
It's funny, we go to Israel and the news there. Uh, so many people who I saw over the summer who were allowed to leave Israel and travel to the United States said, you know, when I asked them, how is it that Israel did so well so early on when it came to COVID-19? And now, you know, things are unfortunately not so great. And they said, well, it was the reopening of the schools. You know, they are planning on starting a slow school reopening in Israel this coming Sunday. Right. And, and uh, yes, there were many reasons given. Um, and, w- and you say when we get to Israel, I wish we could get to Israel. <laughs> yeah. right. I think more and more people are really yearning for it. I, I can judge by the calls that I get about it um, and how I personally feel, and especially after Sukkot not being in Israel and Skolta not being there for you know, now this is the longest time in 50 years that I haven't been in Israel, and it's really painful. And maybe we won't take it so much for granted that people will appreciate it more that we have the ease with which we can go. You know, unlike our parents, grandparents, for whom this was such a major undertaking or I, an impossibility. I mean, I've pointed this out before. There are mornings you've woken up in the last 25 years where you said, okay, tonight I'm going to fly to Israel. And that, That's that, right. I've had to do. I, I, saying, I've gone to Israel on two hours' notice and for five hours, and came back. I met with the prime minister and had a re- and returned right away. And you know, for I remember when my parents went, what a produ- production it was, yeah. and what excitement, <laughs> and, and people would, would you know pack toilet paper and coffee and stuff that they would bring with them. And if my father and, and, went for less than a month, people thought he was crazy. Like right. you're going already, you stay for three, four weeks. You know. Yeah, it's true. So, uh, number one, so I hope we don't take it for granted. Number two, you know, the the incidents, the pandemic and the political uh, events here in the country have so eclipsed such major developments and and significant events um, that it, it's, it's, it's a shame because some of them are very significant on, on the, the end of the arms embargo in Iran coming up uh, and the um, Rouhani's declarations in this regard, the Russians and Chinese ready to provide the weapons. Um, and they're going to provide weapons to South America, to, Af- to Africa, to, to Hezbollah and Hamas, of course, will be beneficiaries. But the good news, which is what's really remarkable, gets no coverage today when it comes to Israel. Everybody's interested in the fight between Netanyahu and his legal problems and right. the domestic um, uh, situation, which is very serious still, and the numbers are very high and very painful. But there was a study done by the Zagvi Group, Zagvi Analytics, which is American-based and reported on uh, Sky News Arabia. And it's, it's very interesting to see the change, because I've talked about these statistics with you when they were really bad, but it said 60% almost of Jordanians, Saudis, Egyptians, uh, and I think 56% of, of UAE residents support normalization with Israel. Mm. All the countries except the Palestinians <laughs> were 61% opposed normalization. It's a radical change that is taking place. And, and, you know, I speak to people in the Gulf and other places where you, you see that this is not simply a superficial agreement. Yesterday, the Knesset voted to pass it, what, 80 to 13 or something. Um, and the, the uh, hopefully, the Sudan they're talking about being next. Saudi Arabia is under pressure to, to join. But they're making changes. The overflights over Jordan, something Israel sought for so long. And now, and, and the fact that Iraqi, Jordanian, and other airlines are going to fly over Israel, that um, hopefully the Saudis are going to make permanent the overflight rights. It doesn't sound like much to most people from America, but when you're going to the Far East, this is radically important. And, again, the change is opposed when you see what the 
uh, Grand Mufti of uh, of of Jerusalem, the Grand Mufti, you know, which is something of uh, you know historical significance because the, his predecessor was one of those key backers of the of Hitler and suggested, in fact, the term the final solution for for the problem. But he said that the texts clearly say that if any one inch is, is stolen, quote, stolen, that you go to jihad, that you're commanded and, and uh, personal commandment and collective commandment to uh, to do it. And we also see the change that Qatar and Turkey have now moved in to be the key critical players in Gaza replacing Egypt, replacing Saudi Arabia, uh, the, the radicalization that is taking place there, and the movement amongst the Palestinians towards a one-state solution where the, the numbers supporting a, um, a two-state solution, whatever it would mean, and it's undefined, but still the concept, uh, has dropped so significantly that it was like 70% in um, in 2000 and 55 percent in 2011, now it's under 30, it's under 40 percent, hmm. and it's a significant statement when you analyze what what that means in terms of of how they're approaching it. And yet, on every other front, Lebanon is sitting with Israel to talk about the maritime things. It's not normalization. It's not shouldn't be exaggerated significance, but it is. The fact that they're sitting talking, the, the Lebanese wouldn't talk directly to the Israelis, so the American ambassador to Algeria, I think, is the, is the intermediary uh, uh, between them. And the, the, um, the plans that Saudi Arabia had for the big city that the MBS has been working on, they're starting to implement it, which could have immense implications for Saudi-Israel relations and for the whole Red Sea area. And I'm, I'm just telling things off the top of my head that I remember of all of these amazing uh, changes, how the Eastern Mediterranean Agreement that is now in force was while we were off the air. But you have Italy and, and Egypt and um, other countries now joining the Greek-Israel-Cyprus core that I've talked about so long and we've worked on for, for 10 years. And um, these, all this is all good news, and yet... you got to go back for a second to Lebanon, because when an average guy like me reads a story like that, I'm saying, who are they negotiating? They can't negotiate with Hezbollah, but we're, we're under the impression that Hezbollah essentially controls the country at this point. So who's on the other side? That's a good question, and, and uh, an appropriate one. And they're negotiating with the president, who is Aoun right now. The fact is that Lebanon doesn't have a government. The government fell. They've not been able to put one together. They've had several attempts by different uh, prime ministers uh, since then, and, of course, the explosion set it back further. Aoun wants to get out. Aoun is a guy who was head of the of the Christian forces, and um, I met him many times in Lebanon. I was there with, even with the motto, and, and he came to the border, picked us up, took us to Marjoun and other places. And then he flipped, and he went with Hezbollah, and, and as a result, he became the president more or less as a puppet of theirs, and now that has split. He has split again with them. Uh, so it, essentially they're negotiating with a representative of the president, but the motivation is, you know, trillions of, of uh, meters of, of gas and of um, oil, and there's no greater uh, motivation than to try to save the economy of a country that is in total economic collapse, so total collapse. if not for Chevron and Noble Energy, this would still be happening? Does this agreement have anything to do with that purchase? It, 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 by the discoveries that um, in Leviathan and, and, and the other areas in the eastern Mediterranean, by Cyprus, 
that's what's driving it. Now, the, the fight is, of course, that each country extends and claims a huge maritime uh, zone. And that, so that's what it's over, because they have companies, Total, the French company, is ready to drill off the coast of Lebanon, right. <laughs> but rem- they can't. I, I'm just I'm laughing because it reminds us that no one, I mean, I don't, I, you know, I don't want to say this because I don't know if it would be fair to the UAE and others, but I don't know if anybody really wants peace. The moment they see that there's a really good business arrangement coming down the road, then all of a sudden they want to make some type of peace agreement. Now I understand, based on what you how you just reacted to this, that they, why they want a maritime or a, you know, some type of um, of of border uh, because once that border, I assume, is established, then at least both countries can move ahead and and start doing business with that with those resources, right? And can drill up to that point. Um, right. And when it is under dispute, then remember this doesn't this does not solve the land issues between Israel and right. Shabbat Farms, some of these other areas. Because there's no money to be made there. <laughs> That's why. Yeah, there's, I guess, some, but the, the farms don't produce that much, I guess. I mean, the business, in, in all seriousness, business is now going to uh, force both sides to make some type of agreement. I still don't get how someone who you just described as a puppet of Hezbollah, or really a member, it sounds like, you know, of is going to you know make a deal with Israel that Israel could accept. But it seemed from what the, the way the prime minister spoke about it this week that he's ready to move ahead. Well, first of all, they're negotiating with the United States, both right, sides, and, uh, or U.S. representatives, so they can claim that they're not, not negotiating right now with Israel. But th- there's nobody who doesn't recognize the need, because Malah wants the money, too. I mean, they, they are right. in dire shape also, and Iran has cut back on the funding. And you know so, what that money's going to go to eventually? Well, of course, if, if it goes to them, because as Israel has said, you know, if there's a war, it's a war today against the government of Lebanon, not just Hezbollah, because Hezbollah is an integral part of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, they had a, they have to make the choices. The people of Lebanon have to help make the choices. And you see that the the popularity of Hezbollah is dropping precipitously. But the problem is that there's a vacuum, and, and people are leaving, young people especially uh, are leaving. I spoke to a journalist friend in Beirut. I've spoken to others who describe really dire circumstances um, in, in the country. And Israel wants to see a stable Lebanon, but not with Hezbollah. Right. And just as they want a stable Gaza, they want to see these areas because the instability affects them. But there are shifting alliances of, of uh, very great significance. For the UAE, uh, it's, it has a bigger implication, and that is the modernization of the country. Right. About what is the model that they want to look for? Is it the, to go with uh, the retarded view of the Iranians, of Khamenei and, and his group? No, they, they look at Israel and they say, and I've heard this from leaders in Saudi Arabia, in Qatar, in, in the UAE, that uh, you know that's the model for us. Right. And, and the, the real key is that all, everybody always said that the way to peace is through Ramallah, that if you want to have a solution, if you want to have a relation with the Arab countries, it's Ramallah. And they've said to them, no more, no more veto, no more till you get your act together. They've cut off, the, they've significantly cut any funding to the PA, very significantly. I think they were, they, the Arab countries haven't given any money in a, since April or something, because they're just sick and tired of... Yeah. of Pouring the money down the tube there, and you know, and you know who spread that myth that the only way through peace is through Amala. Unfortunately, representatives of the United States government, many of whom we can name, and many of whom are you know, and organizations, and individuals, and think tanks, and others, yeah. and certainly the media that that kept portraying this that right, the but, Arab states, but and it's still an issue. It's not to be dismissed. I get that, but I'm thinking more of Dennis Ross or Isavir. I know what you were thinking. Yeah, about. I had a feeling you knew exactly who I was thinking about. You know, listener Lenny tells a joke. 
But I think there's some truth to it based on what I'm thinking about with, with regard to the presidential election. He says, Nahum, how remarkable. Last year we were discussing problems with Iran. Today we're discussing problems with Kiddishes. And, you know, I, as, <laughs> as you know, and you are as well, you know, I, I love politics as a spectator sport. It's two and a half weeks till the elections. This is prime time for somebody like, you know, this, this is World Series time for someone like me. And I'm watching these town halls and, and debates, whatever debates are going on, everything else. None of these is nothing. Nothing is coming up. Nothing important in terms of international politics is coming up. Even this issue of rapper troop reduction, right? And and Trump again was on it yesterday. He's willing to pull out of every everywhere as soon as possible. And it's a real issue. The speed of it's a real issue, and what countries he's considering is a real issue. And it's never discussed. None of this gets any attention. I gotta get no argument for me. I mean that's Not absolutely one? true. Nobody I don't is think saying, there was one they're much more interested in some the latest tweet or or Twitter or something that they can exploit and rather than looking at the changes, good and bad changes that that are occurring. But while they're focusing on whether Trump wears a mask or not, do you realize that, that almost every presidential discussion uh, before elections in God knows how many, you know, election years have focused so much on the US military? Just that. You know, if you don't want to call it foreign policy, okay. But U.S. military was it was like the number one or two issue after the economy uh, in every one of these conversations for the last many decades. But it's never even brought up now. It, it isn't brought up about our military preparedness, about the, um, you know, is America stronger or weaker in right. the world? These are, are important issues. The fact that the United States has led almost single-handedly against Iran now with the Europeans and still lagging behind and still trying to argue against the imposition of the additional sanctions, which the United States had placed this week on the remaining uh, financial institutions. And, you know, Iran is busy blaming, and, and it, you hear the echo here and in Europe, that for medical medicine shortages and all that, when that is not covered by the sanctions, it's a lie. They just divert all the attention and, and the finances and resources that are supposed to go for medicine. I mean, last year there was a billion dollars that was supposed to be spent on, on in medicines and, and medical areas that is, quote, missing by their admission. And the, you know, the, the, the media is not, people are going to wake up after this election and say, when did all of this stuff happen? Yeah, where, where, did, where, did, where did it go? I mean, you see Turkey renewing its survey activities in the eastern Mediterranean. All, and each of these issues, like Nagorno-Karabakh, where you have Russia, Turkey, Iran, Israel, Pakistan, let alone the Azeris and Armenians involved, it's all potentially so explosive it could become, you know, a, a conflagration very easily that yeah. becomes much broader in its impact. And, and that's true in Libya. It's true in, in the Yemen. It's true in so many places. You mentioned it to people. They look at you blankly and they say, well, what was going on there? What's going there? What do you think of the line of questioning at the Barrett hearing? Well, what I watched, I didn't couldn't didn't have time to watch uh, most of it, but I did listen to some of the reports and uh, afterwards. I think she handled herself amazingly well. She's clearly very bright. I know people who went to college with her, and everybody, whether they agree with her views or not, and there were some who sharply disagree with some of her positions, uh, praise her and and extol her. And the, to me, the most telltale thing is when they ask her that she had a pad in front of her. Right. Could you could you show us what notes you had when you came in? And it was blank that she did all of this without the volumes of, of notes that people usually have when they go into to a hearing of this kind. Man, we all went to high school with someone like that. Yeah. Hate them all. Exactly. <laughs> 
<laughs> if she was a guy, she would have been beaten up to beaten up thirty times in the back room. <laughs> Just kidding, folks. You know I'm just joking around, citing a completely different era than the way we handle things now. Finally, Malcolm, explain this to me. Sweden will boost military spending by around 40% over the next five years. And this, by the way, I think is a great example of a foreign policy question. Over the next five years and double the numbers conscripted into the uh, armed forces it looks to beef up its defense amid growing tensions with Russia. This according to their government in a statement yesterday. I mean, it took till 2020. I'm assuming that this whole... This pattern has gone on, I assume, since World War II, right, in terms of reduction. And now all of a sudden Sweden's waking up. And what does it tell us about Russia, that a neighbor like Sweden has to take action like this? So that's a series of very good questions that uh, we could devote a whole show to uh, about Russia's increasing uh, aggressiveness and outreach everywhere and challenging uh, Europeans, challenging the United States, wherever the U.S. is, they are. Wherever there's a void, they will try to fill it, as we see in the Karabakh, as you see in Libya, as you see in other places far away from Russia. can't say that it's like the Ukraine or others that are immediate neighbors and right. you know, their direct uh, interest. Uh, it's very funny in the part of Sweden, which has been opposed to any militarization <laughs> and things like that in the past. And right. Europe altogether has walked away from its responsibilities. And I think President Trump really stuck it to them about picking up a big, bigger share of NATO, which nobody again talks about. But but more than that, it's it's putting them on notice. And France, for the first time, did intervene against Turkey in the Mediterranean. We are seeing certain signs of uh, willing to stand up. But more, we see the signs of the failure to stand up, and particularly on Iran, where they're not willing to back the United States, where they're not willing to take the courageous stands to, to, uh, to protect them, because they're within missile range today uh, of, of Iran. And Russia was allowed over these decades to to have a chokehold on energy supply, which is why they are involved in some of the conflicts. Even it applies to Azerbaijan, where you have pipelines to Europe um, that uh, they they want to be able to control. They want to be the sole supplier, uh, or at least to be in total control of the pipelines and the flow of energy to Europe, because they have them and then over a barrel. So you tell, uh, like they did with Ukraine, to give them a cold winter, they can tell it to the Germans, you know, you're not getting an energy this year. Right. So, but And in the meantime, they have neglected because we filled the void and, and because it wasn't a direct conflict. But now I think most of this military development is not against just against external threats, which are, are somewhat limited. I mean, Denmark's not going to invade or attack them, or Norway, right. uh, likely. Uh, they might <laughs> take their herring, but that's it. But, but they have huge problems today with internal terrorism, both with the radicalization of populations, with the Islamist uh, population that has come, that it's become Islamic, which have become Islamist and radicalized. And, you know, they had open borders. They, they took in refugees. And now, I mean, I've heard it from in, in talks with high-ranking Swedish officials, uh, their concerns in, in, in this regard. And, you know, I think it's true for, for much of Europe. And, and the armies there don't want to be policemen, so they don't want to do the domestic thing, even when it came to protecting Jewish institutions in France and others. The soldiers said, look, this is for police. This is not for us to do. Some wouldn't even show up for it, for their duty in this regard. So Europe... Is facing a new reality. The question is, will they have the gumption to, to stand up to it, to to really take the steps necessary, or they continue to concede? In some places, it's too late. They gave up. They lost. Yep. And um, I hate to say that, and I hope that everything can be reversed, but that's not the way a lot of people in Europe see it. And it's not the way the world usually works. The reversal is very difficult to obtain. And all we hear about here is the stories from Sweden about the... Uh, 
the fact they've handled the you know COVID nineteen so well, why they've gotten away with that? I mean, not they've gotten away with anything, but meaning why it works so well there without shutting things down. I have no idea. I wish I knew the answer to that. Well, they were talking about uh, you know um, the immunity that comes from herd immunity and other things. You know, it's proven, but. Uh, they also had periods when uh, the numbers were were uh, serious. One thing we've learned: nobody knows anything about this virus. Nobody That's knows. True. Now we see it can come back a second time. For all of those people who yeah. answered me that they don't wear masks because they they had it, so they have antibodies, but I don't. So they don't think about the fact that they are sad that they are endangering other people's lives, let alone I think their own, because now it's shown. Uh, in Israel, we have dozens of cases. Uh, I've heard of, of people getting it a second time. We see children now being carriers in, in the latest studies. So you're right. That's the real part of the mystery of this thing is that we really just don't know. We don't know how many cycles we'll have of it. We don't know when it ends. And I understand people's frustrations. I understand the desire to have schools open and schools open. I want that, too. We want, all have to have, want to see that happen. But the more we comply, the more likely is that we can bring that about sooner. I hope so, including travel to Israel. And, and, and we should let our book officials, when they go off track, know, but do it responsibly and respectfully and effectively and you know, people will define that, but, but you know, we, we, we have to think about the long-term uh, images and damage and stuff that, that can be done during a, such a critical period. No question about it. Thank you so much for your time. Have a wonderful Shabbos, and we'll speak Good again Shabbos. next week. Malcolm Holmline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us Friday morning, 7.40 a.m. Eastern Time for the weekly update here at JM in the AM.